Welcome everyone to episode 8 of the Greater European Talks. My name is Philippe, your host coming from Leuven, Belgium. And with me we have one of our speakers from last week, Dari. Can I say hello? Hello. We have all the way from Gettysburg, uh, US, Jack. Hey everyone, how are you? And last by no means least, we have coming from, still in Barcelona, I believe. Please correct me if I'm wrong, Diego. Yes, you're right, Diego. Ah, fantastic. So today we're going to be talking about uh, Western European and Atlantic affairs. And of course, we're talking quite transatlantic here. So not only the US, but Canada, Mexico, and lots of northern parts of South America as well. It's quite a turbulent time, especially under these COVID-19 situations. Uh, But to start it off, I will be speaking a little bit about uh, what's happening in France and what has happened a few days ago, four days ago. Emmanuel Macron lost his majority in the National Assembly by one, that is, down to 288 of the Assembly. Now, this is owing to several of his own party members from um, Les Républicains Marche, his political group, leaving and forming a new group, uh, Ecologie Démocratie Solidarité, or EDS, um, a new seven-party group, mostly seen as sort of a, a rebuff of what many see as Macron's steering to the right of the political spectrum. So obviously, as a very centrist candidate, he said there is no right or left in his party. But many, both in his own party, evidently, and outside, have seen him become a bit more of a right-wing or centre-right figure. Now, whilst this isn't going to put him in any threat, really, um, because he works a lot with other parties in the National Assembly, uh, Agir, for example, a centre-left group, and uh, Modem, a very centrist group, Um, So it's definitely not going to threaten him for now, but it's a very interesting one because the new party contains, for example, one of his most uh, clearest, um, I guess, former protégés, Cédric Villani, who was a big part of the push for science and technology to be in this new centrist movement. Villani being a very famous mathematician and um, who most recently annoyed the party and was kicked out when he tried to run for mayor of Paris um, against the LREM candidate, who in the end was removed anyway, owing to a dick pic scandal, I believe. Um, Now, Villani leaving quite openly to set up a new party is quite a big deal. It kind of shows the crumbling at the edges of uh, Macron's dream. Um, Whether this will become a new threat in the future, to me, is unlikely. But the fact that it's happened now amongst this crisis, when Macron, unlike many leaders, has been getting a lower uh, rate of approval from people, I think is a testament to the difficulties of French politics and how many who've claimed that Macron has reached this Jupiter, Jupiterian precipice is actually starting to struggle a little bit at the top. I guess anybody got any comments about like how they feel it's going to affect uh, France or Macron in general questions? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely coming from a position of this trend of Macron to the, the right, it almost you know makes one think about what the um, political landscape of Europe is going to look like on an ideological spectrum. Um, of course, voters sort of decide, the, 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 major, the majority of voters decide their uh, country's position. But it seems, at least from an American observation, that a lot of these European countries are starting to embrace 
maybe not necessarily always far-right positions, but at least some sort of aspect of a center-right position. Um, Italy, Poland, um, you know, Germany starting to sort of see some increase into that. And it looks like France, you know, has been trying to hold out for as long as it can, but is now um, sort of following in the direction of a lot of its colleagues and allies. Mm. I think it's a really good point. I think we can't underestimate the fact that mm-hmm. a lot of this maybe right-wing shift has also been because of Marine Le Pen and the fact that she is very much seen as the only competitor to Macron. We saw the kind of, um, in the elections recently, the local elections, that Macron's party did get trounced at the elections, and Marine Le Pen did win quite a lot, her party anyway. So maybe in that sense it's also uh, yeah, a, a purposeful shift to the right, um, kind of moving the, the opportunity of it. I think it's... I'm not sure how much compared to other countries, though. I doubt there are many other countries. Maybe the Netherlands as well, under Mark Rutte, but I'm a bit more right-wing. Uh, but most of the countries, I think it is firm right. Um, I don't think you can claim that Poland is being centre-right at this moment. Um, not their claim. Well, that's why I put the caveat is some are far Yeah, right. no, it's a good point. <laughs> um, well, you think of the, you know, the United Kingdom. I wouldn't necessarily call them far-right, but they're right. My own country, we're not necessarily far-right. We play by a whole different set of rules, but we're definitely um, on the right side of the spectrum, at least the majority of our government. So uh, you start stringing, stringing these together and you almost, you're putting this new club together. Agreed. I think what's interesting as well is the fact that obviously Macron got into this whole idea with his LREM to break the spectrum. Yeah. I am no longer on the spectrum. <laughs> I am la République en marche. Uh, but then, of course, he now has become the spectrum, and people are putting him on the right side of it. It's a little so realist, don't you think? It's a little realist, yeah. Um, I think that's that's. I mean, that's why the group left. Really, they thought they could do better outside rather than inside, which I think is their kind of take Everybody on it. Everybody says that. Everybody says that. Yeah, they. I think that their actual official quote was, um, uh, "We failed to reform it from the inside, so we can exert more on the outside." And they they quoted, for example. They quoted like social issues and environmental issues, the reason they, they backed out. So there's definitely, I think, a feeling from, definitely a feeling from outside, that's for sure. It was from inside the, the party that they're not doing enough to tackle these issues. What's, what's that quote from the, uh, the Hamilton musical about not being able to put out the fire from inside the house? There are millions of amazing quotes from that musical. I couldn't even begin to think of them. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Diego, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to refer to, well, two main issues regarding the French question. The first one is, uh, as you were saying, you were referring to the impact these macro policies have in the past and how it brought the unity in its party, as to the point of losing its majority in the assembly. But now, I remember reading an article uh, on the Monde, I believe it was last week, about how Macron tried to reshape its political speech so it was the same, uh, the same position the French had uh, during the 1950s with the war in Algeria and the famous politique de Vendée of the, the Charles de Gaulle, because uh, many political analysts have argued that in French politics there is always a time of in times of crisis they have concluded the French tend to look for a messianic leader, someone like in the figure of Charles de Gaulle. Definitely. In other words, someone that. Uh, does not specifically concentrate on one on one on one uh, extreme of the ideological spectrum, but someone that refers to the ideas and values that mm, consolidate or make the idea of the French Republic. Uh, in this case, 
uh, the Macron idea of we well trying to assemble the the the, the values they both ascended the free republic were for example with the French German declaration mm-hmm. the anti American. This case Macron took a step forward as one of the leaders that represent the southern European countries that were heavily touched by the coronavirus crisis. Uh, in contrast to the northern European countries that were not that that heavily economically affected as in the south, and he tried to mediate between that crisis in order to uh, try to solve the crisis in his country by trying to solve the crisis in the European Union. So in other words, for Macron, a, a, a strong a strong Europe can translate into a strong France. There is definitely a lot of links you can make between De Gaulle and Macron. I think. Every every election that comes by, every new president is uh, compared to De Gaulle. But there are definitely more, I think, uh, between Macron and and himself. As you say, his his view that a strong Europe is a strong France. I'd say they're from the opposite ends of the spectrum. Like De Gaulle wanted Europe to become kind of just a way to amplify France, whether kind of the other way around Macron, strong Europe can help France, but it's not quite subservient to the same ways. But in terms of his view of the spectrum, I think that's quite similar. Yeah, de Gaulle definitely um, had a unique view of French politics on how the spectrum works. He was more about, yeah, whatever makes the Republic work. Um, and one of my favourite quotes about the French is, um, and yeah, as one of them, I can actually too, they're very, they're regicidal monarchists. They love having a king, like someone, a sole figure who can lead everything. But they also love being able to kill that king or leader whenever they want. I mean, look at Charles de Gaulle in the 1968, uh, you know, riots. Look at almost every every leader since then. They want a powerful leader, but they want to be able to. And they want to threaten to be able to remove him at any point. Um, oh, this, this book uh, that I had to read for a class of... Short history of Europe really really ties into the benefits of having a monarch, especially in France. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, I mean well, that didn't quite go well towards the end of it. But even now, even now, I mean, the power of a president every year becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is another testament why this situation isn't a big deal. Like as president, Macron can already do a huge amount without the parliament. And yeah, it's probably one of the weaker assemblies in Europe. Um, but still, it's it's striking that it happened now of all times in the middle of this crisis. I think it was timed very clearly as well. Uh, they could have done it a few months earlier when things were more serious. They could have done it a few months later, or else people would have already forgiven Macron. Uh, so right now, it's definitely timed to inflict the most damage. Um, and we'll see if that damage keeps going. I'll be interested to see if there are any other defectors to the EDS um, or or whether there will be any people filling in for these gaps because um, the LREM whips have apparently, uh, they're looking for a replacement for these defectors. And that's very possible. I mean, if, if you offer someone the right amount of money or credit, someone's going to fill in that gap. Um, but it also shows kind of the balkanization of uh, French national politics. You know, there's a lot of splitting down to smaller groups. Previously, like the Republicans were the big group, or you know, the Socialists were. But now, LREM might be one big group, but it's looking less and less like it will continue without Macron. I think that's a good point to to end that on. 
Okay, I think now we'll move on to Diego, who's also got something French-related. If you want to introduce what you want to talk about today. Well, okay, okay. thank you very much. Uh, well, I was going to discuss about the impact of the French German Declaration that was delivered, I believe, on, in a few days ago uh, on a press conference, on a simultaneous press conference between Angela Merkel and the French President Emmanuel Macron. Uh, the French German Declaration divided into four main issues or aspects to cover, and I will only discuss the two ones that are relevant to our current situation. The first one is the health strategy, that according to France and Germany, the European Union should be empowered in the health governance uh, aspect. And the second one, on the famous recovery fund that has divided the European nations for almost a month because it impeded the, Euro the Eurozone and the European Union to agree on a common European framework for the recovery of the Southern European member states. And according to France and Germany, the best way to ensure the recovery of the Southern member states is not through the famous uh, mechanism of loans, but through the mechanism of grants. Because through grants, they can ensure that this will be repaid uh, as part of the European expenditure, the European Union budget uh, expenditure, and that will be much likely to not inflict in a, in a severe way as it happened with Greece in the 2009 crisis. That will help, that will support the Union to um, try to reach the stability level they had to uh, they had to maintain uh, in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis. So I'm going to I'm going to address the first one, the health the health strategy, and I'll have to say it is curious that France and Germany are discussing about empowering the Union with uh, this idea of health sovereignty, as they describe it in the declaration, when the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union already considered uh, that it is part of the European Union policy and, and all legal acts to take into consideration public health. So it is part of the European Union duty and obligation to take into account in all its measures and policies the, the question of, of public health. And this is because the European Union city, the European Union member state citizens are also the European Union citizens. And the citizens' welfare has been a central issue in the development of European Union law, especially because if you don't have a healthy population, then you cannot have a health, uh, you cannot have healthy consumers that are likely to buy the products made in the European Union. So the internal market continues to be, at this point, also an inspiration for the European Union leaders in the Lisbon Treaty to develop the idea of how the European Union can help member states uh, to enforce and implement their commitments to, for example, the, inter the international health regulations that were passed by the World Health Organization in 2005. And it's quite curious because according to the international health regulations, then all member states are under this point in, in the obligation and duty to notify and to ensure coordination between them in order to tackle a common threat, which is in this case the pandemic of the coronavirus. And for that reason, the European Union created what we call the European Central for Control and Disease Prevention which, in my honest opinion, I just know it existed a few weeks ago, in contrast to, for example, other European Union agencies, uh, so, uh, that 
play also relevant power in this crisis. And this agency or this European Union for the Prevention of Diseases has not been has never been empowered to, for example, provide relevant information on how to handle the pandemic. Because when the pandemic started in Europe, there was not a unified response on how to address the matter. And in this case, they were threatening and indirectly uh, the health of the European Union population. Now, of course, it is very problematic to, at this point, start discussing and, and arguing about whether the European Union is internationally responsible for what happened in the European Union uh, due to its failure to comply with the obligation to coordinate. So in this case, invoke member states to sit down and try to reach an, a common decision on how to handle the pandemic. But here we also have the, the question how member states cooperate with public health. And according to the treaties, uh, it is a value. There is an article to uh, acknowledge the passion on the respect for human rights and the European Union has its charter of for fundamental rights of its citizens. One of them is the protection of public health, which in this case, and this first aspect of the French-German declaration, France and Germany are publicly acknowledging that the European Union strategy uh, before, to, before this pandemic has been only working when we don't have a pandemic. And it is useless when we have a pandemic. And of course, if this is useless to respond to a pandemic, then the European Union cannot do anything because according to the European Union case law, the Union can only act if the treaties allow them to. That's the famous principle of conferral, which in this case impede the Union to do something. And it's on the member states to uh, assume the burden and try to implement measures. So in this French-German declaration, there are one of the most controversial points is to develop the famous vaccine against the coronavirus. That is one of the commitments the French and the Germans are seeking with this proposal for the European Commission, for the Europeans to develop the vaccine and to uh, make it available for all, not only for the European Union, but also for the international, uh, for international market in, in the idea of international cooperation that Union has always had. And of course, Jack can also talk about as the idea of Donald Trump of acquiring all the rights on the vaccine developed by the Germans. And that's the response by, in this case, the French and the Germans. They're saying, no, they have to develop a vaccine that can be available to anyone, not just for Europe. And this is not just to concentrate all the earnings from that vaccine, but to share it with the world as a public good. Of course, not in the sense of public good as the Chinese presidents uh, said, I believe, uh, two days ago when he was delivering a speech and he called the vaccine as public good matter in order to help the world handle the pandemic. Uh, and that will be the, the first part on, on what the health strategy is. And just to end up this first part, and it's also a kind of context, you feel it just gave the context for what the possible motivation could be for France to, in this case, contribute with this idea of a common declaration. But what happens with Germany? And, and, and well, in the case of Germany, paradoxically, the German Constitutional Court, I believe two weeks ago, delivered also one of the most controversial judgments on its recent history. According to, yeah, according to the Constitutional Court, 
the, the German government and all German institutions should not comply with the famous European Central Bank decision uh, that approved the bonds that were given during the economic crisis of 2009, because the Germans considered that they were unlawful according to European Union law, which of course that clashes and enters directly into uh, conflict with what the European Union Court of Justice says. And many authors, many foreign policy and other uh, relevant magazines and expert, uh, not podcasts, but journals or papers, were arguing that the, the initiative of Germany to join with France is a political, uh, let's say, a political act to try to mitigate the impact of the German Constitutional Court decision that could inflict the German commitment to a stronger, united, and unified uh, European Union, not just economic, but political project as well. I see. Okay, interesting. So to unpack that, I guess, um, first question I have is, in terms of the second part you mentioned, how there was a political decision to make this pact to, to dull down uh, has there been any overt German statements on the ruling by Karlsruhe? Uh, well, in this case, the German Chancellor has not made any comment on the court decision because the Germans take very seriously this question of its analysis. She cannot contradict what the court said, but she can politically help the Union to avoid the court to, in this case, interfering with any decision by European Union. In this case, if Germany is trying to propose a solution, they consider it's not going to contradict, it's going to go contrary to German law or European Union law, then she can ensure in the long term that this this controversial episode will not be repeated. Well, this would be like That's a good point, a good point. I guess it's the most she can do, really, while staying in the confines of uh, yeah, yeah. the legality. I, I guess the one question I had about uh, the earlier statement, do you think that this is therefore a positive development, like it will improve like, pandemic responses or medical responses in the future, or do you think it's more just a political decision to say, look, let's push for this in the future? Well, it's going to improve the, the management of the pandemic. Is it a good step or a bad step or not a step at all? We can say it's a great, it's a great step. It's a great step because what they are proposing in this declaration is not to cover the long-term measures to avoid another pandemic. What they are doing with the declaration is they are they are uh, speaking about how to empower the European Center for Control of Diseases. But the problem is that for that you need to change a regulation. Uh, To change a regulation, you need another regulation. That has to be approved by the European Parliament and the Council of the European Union, which of course in European Union law takes more than a month. It can take a year, it can take more than a year just to make this amendment. This simple amendment to uh, to the text of this regulation where they specify this European Centre for Disease Prevention will not have any regulatory power. According to that, if the European Centre considers that and a specific practice by a member state can lead to in the future uh, the enter the entrance of any communicable disease to European territory, 
the member state can ignore that decision because it is, it is not bound by what the European Center of Diseases considered or has analyzed. That's a good question. They are not they are not empowering the Center for Disease Prevention and Control. They are only trying to they're only trying to mitigate our perspective. I guess. Are there any any questions, Diego, or comments you guys have? Yeah, I would like to ask a question regarding the unity of the European Union. So basically, I feel like, again, we have a situation when there is Germany and there is France. They act together. They're trying to get a message across that Europe should be united. But don't you think that in this case, like every single member state should be involved in negotiating what strategy should be applied in the future? Because I feel like this pandemic showed that the EU is very divided, that when it comes to real crisis, Everybody acts alone. Nobody's going to defend anybody. Nobody's going to help anybody. And I do feel it's symbolic Then again, it's not the whole European Union trying to apply a strategy or create something new. It's again, separate states like France, Germany. So do you think it's symbolic and the message does it from there? Well, that's, well, that's a powerful question. And it's very relevant today. Uh, and the, the very, the great example I can provide you to to answer that question could be uh, how the European Union was created in the first place. Uh, we can go back to the European the European Community of Steel and Coal that was founded after Germany and France decided to set aside the differences and try to form a high authority that will control the production of the two main materials needed for the production of weapons or arms and other military equipment. So. That historic uh, precedent demonstrated in the following years that only with the agreement of France and Germany in the European Union scenario, many achievements can be done. So here the division occurred during the during the handling of, of the COVID-19 pandemic was because Germany was on the other side of the rift. In this case, Germany agreed with its northern partners, with Netherlands, with Finland that we should not carry the burden of the southern states. And France has been has supported what the claims from Italy, from Spain, from Portugal. According to France, we should carry the burden in a way, in a manner of solidarity due to the disaster we are suffering. So because in these two countries, they are also facing the consequences of Brexit or the, in, term, in their internal politics, they have to make concessions. So in the case of France, Macron has lost his majority. And in the case of Germany, it's Merkel's last year, and also Merkel has to mitigate what the judicial what the judiciary has, has affected in some way the idea of an harmony uh, in the European Union law system. So this this pandemic, yes, it has demonstrated, as you said, that the union was not that united as it should be. But also the union has demonstrated that in times of adversity. If these two countries do not agree with, between each other, then it is more likely that there will be the famous impasse that occurred in 1968 with the uh, empty crisis when Charles de Gaulle uh, blocked, the, blocked the community from adopting the accession of the United Kingdom. If France or Germany do not consider supporting a decision, then it is likely that all member states will go under this opposite idea. And we are going to face either the decadence of the union, or we can face the need to uh, enhance 
uh, political integration process within it. See, very interesting. Uh, any final final comments, or should we move on to Darius? I feel like uh, I appreciated your answer very much. Thank you for this. But I feel like basically in your answer you say that uh, the European Union is basically a union between France and Germany and others will follow basically. So yeah, and it's not just this that united and that is that is an interpretation of the Schuman Declaration. It's a full interpretation, really, um, of the fact that yeah. Who is, You're already uh, paying attention to your international yeah. law class. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, who are the biggest belligerents in European situations? It's both France and Germany, um, either against each other or against different ones. And it does sort of circle around that. It should change. Certainly, in my opinion, it should change. But uh, one of the main examples, one of the wishes of how it could change was Poland would become one of the, the major tribes. So the, the tripartite kind of actor in it, being one of the largest countries outside of France and Germany. Um, however, they can't really claim that right now with their, their issues. Italy as well, you know, very often was the third member of it. Unfortunately, they've gone through quite a nationalistic route. Spain as well. Uh, unfortunately, the, the leaders, I don't think, are secure enough in their own national decisions to really go further. I feel like it's the foundation of it. And they'd love to get further, but no one else has really been able to. Um, and God knows the British haven't. <laughs> like, maybe at one brief point in history, like maybe in, in, in 2001, maybe, there were actual possibilities. But then, of course, nothing went further there. Um, so, Diego, to, to build off of, of, of Darnie's question, and, and forgive me if it's, it's a little bit too similar, looking into your crystal ball, what does the cohesion of the European Union look like in a year, in five years, in 10 years? <laughs> I mean, I think the pandemic, the pandemic sort of underlie or highlights sort of these underlying issues of European unity. You know, the Brits have already left. The Scots want back in, you know, various other countries. The Italians are thinking, do we really need this? Le Pen, you know, is, is more skeptical about the whole idea of European unity. You know, what you're, the, the scholar on this one, it seems, what what does the future look like? Um, if you had to, 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 to give us a prediction. Well, there's, uh, let me have a look at my wall here to give you my prediction. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you, uh, it was after I read one of, I was reading part of uh, some, well, some papers on the matter on how the European Union has managed to be, to still be a power international relations, not a, not a power as in, in the level of the US or China, but how the European Union has managed in 1950 and after all the crises that have taken place around Europe and in Europe, politically and economically, how, is, how has it still managed to survive? And many have argued that the European Union is the only civilian power in the world, mm -hmm. in the international politics arena. This international civil power consists of being the main humanitarian supporter, being the main organization that tries to export the idea of democracy. Not in the U.S. way, of course. <laughs> That's how we might have to make a difference here. Because the European Union doesn't have the army to, for example, face a superpower as the U.S. or China. But the European Union has consisted in the idea of promoting these values through first the economic union. So they have, they have considered that if we all 
agree to, for example, uh, eliminate all economic barriers between our countries, then we are not going to have any need from extracting the resources from your country without your consent. So that was the first step they took. After that, they decided, okay, we should go a little further. So they uh, established the monetary union. They created one single currency. And with the single currency, the market was being established, was, was going to be handled by all countries, not just by own, like one country, which of course in practice is not that well established because if Germany's economy fails, then all European Union fails as well. That's, in, that's what in practice we need to also have to take into account. And in the political part, what has made the European Union so relevant power is for European citizens to come with the possibility to choose representatives in the European Parliament and have a say in the European Union legislation. Of course, that in practice also clashes with how I can do, how I can see the union so close to me. And for citizens, and in their best interest, they see first a territory with freedom, with four freedoms, movement, freedom of movement, uh, freedom of circulation of goods, of capitals, of workers in the Schengen territory, excluding the United Kingdom and Ireland. This freedom has motivated many of these citizens to, for example, not withdraw the union, which why has Hungary not decided to invoke or trigger Article 50 as the United Kingdom? Because Hungary doesn't have ports. If, if Hungary decides to trigger Article 50, they're going to lose the power to, for example, have access to international markets, international trade and markets. But it doesn't have a port, it doesn't have access to the sea. If it wanted to have access to the sea, they will still have to reach an agreement with the European Union. So the European Union created a body that artificially eliminated all possibilities of conflict. So this legal corpus the European Union has designed, this complex legal corpus that it has designed, has made the idea of unity the less likely to in, impact negatively on our countries. Of course, that in practice, we can, it is not that clearly observed because there are many competences that are not being uh, clearly drawn between what can the union do and what can a member state do in an exclusive manner, which happens with a common security policy, with a common defense policy, the most controversial and relevant aspect that still needs to be developed. But in the areas of, for example, economy, uh, financial and single currency, the union has exclusive power. They take their decisions and member states are bound by these decisions. They have limited their sovereignty to a high authority, as the Schumann Declaration once stated. So this high authority is the one that has the duty to coordinate between them. If the union doesn't take the initiative, then the member states are going to forget their obligations. As it happened with the coronavirus pandemic. Because the European Commission failed to uh, invoke all member states to take an action, a common action. What we have seen is the Union didn't do anything, not even France or, or Germany. Just because the Union didn't do it, the rest believe, ah, because the Union doesn't tell us to do it, then we are not obliged to do it. And that's the point on how we usually act in our, as individuals. If you, for example, we are uh, if we are uh, obliged by laws, then the main motivation for you to do something is not to be punished. That's the main part of legal theory, the, the famous dissuasion. So, and, and in this case, a deterrence 
is if I don't do it, something I'm gonna be punished. In the European Union law, the most clauses example will be a pecuniary sanction if I don't comply with my obligations under the treaties. That's the most closest one, but the union cannot expel some other states. So why can't you expel a state? Because you understand this is a union. So if you expel that state, you are risking to have an enemy. Yeah, true. So in order to prevent having the enemy, yeah. the union has contrived this uh, legal corpus that so far has helped to prevent it. It has its deficiencies. It has its main issues, as we pointed out, with the French-German axis in all the structure. Uh, the only way to strengthen that or to dissipate that French-German axis will be what some scholars call the European Union Federation. That's what many scholars have called as the federation, where, of course, in a federation, you're, you're going to have several states, but you're going to have a federal administration. So at the end, yes, you may have two states that can reach or not to an agreement, but the others will also have their say. Well, I don't believe that's very likely to happen. In five years, not in 10, probably a federation could, could exist in 50 years, being optimistic. Only we have learned from the mistakes of this pandemic. And yes, the pandemic has demonstrated there's still plenty of work. Not, even, not, not just for the achieving a federation, but also to achieve a stable union, a stable political and social union. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Diego. I think the, the crystal ball definitely gave you a lot to say there. So um, I think we'll move on from there uh, across the Atlantic, uh, several thousand miles to US. Jack, do you want to introduce your topic? What have you got for us this week? <sighs> Doom and gloom, unfortunately. Oh, great stuff. That's what we want to hear. <laughs> Weapons and arms negotiation. The uh, United States formally notified uh, the Russian Federation, uh, as well as European allies, that um, President Trump has intended to withdraw from this treaty called the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, historically, it was uh, negotiated by uh, George H.W. Bush, the first Bush, uh, in the 90s and went into effect in 2002. Uh, what it pretty much allows for is it allows for countries to uh, surveil other countries, essentially uh, send spy planes uh, with notification you know, over adversaries to ensure that, uh, to ensure that you know, neither state is building up towards a war. Um, it was the first idea introduced by President Eisenhower at the height of the Cold War uh, to sort of, you know, ensure that uh, the United States would always know if the Soviet Union was gearing up for war, but at the same time, the Soviet Union would also know if the U.S. was gearing up for war. Um, and this was rejected by uh, Nikita Khrushchev, who claimed that it was a U.S. plot against weaker countries um, to try and ensure American hegemony. Um, you know, decades later, about 30 years um, since the treaty has remained in effect and has been used by both sides, both the U.S. and Russia, uh, quite extensively um, to essentially surveil missile sites, um, infrastructure, um, you know, various things that might be of concern. Um, however, the United States has begun to claim that the U.S. or that the Russians have been using um, the limits of the treaty more so than the United States has. Um, they claim that Russia is using their surveillance ability to um, conduct pre-op uh, intelligence gathering on infrastructure targets, civilian targets, 
um, going so far as to claim that Russian surveillance aircraft flew over the president's uh, residence at the Bedminster Golf Resort, um, you know, which of course isn't a missile site, but it is. It has become a political, um, a site of political importance uh, in the Trump administration. And this is sort of part of a larger context of you know this treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, you know, excludes satellites, which have become really the main way of gathering information. Um, and because of that, you know, people have argued that the Open Skies Treaty is no longer relevant. It's obsolete, you know, in an era when, you know, you can cheaply launch a private or government satellite. Um, but there is still some relevancy because there is a lot that you cannot gather from satellite. You can't get as detailed information, uh, as precise information, just given rotational uh, and orbital schedules and whatnot. Uh, so there's sort of this push of concern is, is to, you know, what what will the U.S. be losing from pulling out of this treaty? Um, the European allies have um, decided, and Russia for that matter, have claimed that they want to remain within this treaty, that they still think it's a good idea. But um, European allies, particularly uh, the Balkans and the Baltic states, recognize that without the United States as a part of this treaty, you know, for better or for worse, like so many international agreements, you know, a withdrawal from the U.S. instantly weakens the uh, structure the frameworks, the enforcement mechanisms. Um, and they believe that U.S. flybys uh, of Russian missile sites are, you know, important to countering, you know, this perceived notion of um, Russian, the Russians expanding their sphere of influence or taking military action against, uh, potential military action against former uh, republics of the Soviet Union. Uh, and I think tying this all together yeah, sure. Maybe in a context, the Open Skies Treaty, you know, like I said, is obsolete, you know, can be better served by satellites. What does it matter that the U.S. is withdrawing? It's part of a, a larger context. The U.S. has already withdrawn from the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Uh, just last year, the United States withdrew from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. You know, these this monumental Cold War treaty to essentially ensure that, you know, one country, of course, in a Russia, Soviet, or Soviet Union, U.S. context to ensure that one nation doesn't ramp up production of military uh, and nuclear forces at the expense of the other. Um, and this hesitancy as well against the U.S. renewing this treaty called the New START Treaty, which came into force in 2010 uh, under the Obama administration, which sort of builds upon these uh, quickly aging Cold War documents to reduce nuclear stockpiles. Uh, the president, the U.S. president, has claimed that he is not going to renew this treaty in February of 2021 if he is reelected uh, in November, unless China jumps in. And then, sort of, this whole idea—you know—you open up U.S.-China conflict, you open up U.S.-Russia conflict, and in all of these uh, conversations, the U.S. has put sort of an asterisk, saying we want out. However, we'll stay in if the Russians come to us. If the Russians are the ones who sort of put their tail between the legs and negotiate. You know, from my perspective, this is an abdication of U.S. leadership. And I think that, you know, I'm not going to you know, turn all, all pro-American on this, you know, European talks channel, but I think the, the, the post-World War II system has been largely defined by um, the United States, whether it was the U.S.-Soviet conflict that spanned from the 40s to the, the 90s, or you know, post-Cold War American leadership in Europe, in the Middle East, in Asia. Um, 
you know, it, it opens up the potential for new actors to, uh, to become global leaders. China uh, has been taking those opportunities within the World Health Organization um, after the president's, you know, ultimatum to this, you know, seemingly apolitical organization dedicated to our, you know, collective well-being. Uh, you see France and you see the European Union sort of taking the mantle in the, the Paris Climate Accords uh, that, you know, historically has been filled by the United States. Um, you've even seen China expanding their ability to lead in an economic context as the U.S. has uh, withdrawn from the TPP, TTP, TPP, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, uh, but also, you know, the, the various economic challenges that come with NAFTA. So I think it's a bit concerning. My crystal ball is, is a lot cloudier than Diego's is. Um, but that's what we have here on the on the uh, on the American yeah. side. I guess I want to just follow up with one thing, that, which is China. So, I mean, I don't think Russia is any real threat to the US now. I mean, it's got a military the size of Spain. No. It can't afford anything near what it did when these treaties were signed. Um, mm-hmm. But China, however, can, does, and is not as bound by these treaties. Do you see this as a context also just pure remilitarization of the US in order to pivot towards aggressive China rather than Russia? So instead of staying bound with treaties to Russia, it says, look, I don't mm-hmm. care about those. You, I care about, I am remilitarizing, and I am threatening you. Yeah, I think two, two responses to that. One, I think especially under this administration, there has been a greater push towards militarization. Um, you know, the Obama administration, you know, didn't necessarily take force off the table, but it was, you know, it wasn't option yeah. number one uh, for U.S., for the um, fulfillment of U.S. foreign policy as in the Bush administration. Um, I think you're seeing a reversal, or you have seen in the past three and a half years, that this president likes the military. Uh, likes playing with the toys, you know, quote unquote, that are his Navy, his army, um, you know, as you were saying a bit earlier, almost like a king in a sense. Um, I think the U.S. will use these um, expiration dates, whether they're natural expiration dates like the New START Treaty or um, unilateral withdrawal to uh, ensure that the U.S. can still claim to be abiding by international law. Whether or not it respects the international law is a whole different conversation, but that it can claim to abide by these international laws and still be able to build up weapon stockpiles, expand military uh, technologies and, and weaponry to counter you know, wep- uh, enemies like China who have uh, an obvious numerical... They, they actually now have the largest military on Earth, pure numbers-wise, and are very quickly becoming... They do, yeah, pure numbers standpoint. I think the U.S., from, from some of the research that I've been doing, the U.S. still holds a technology... Um, superiority, but the gap is very quickly closing. And I think to speculate with the Russians, um, you know, maybe they'll see this as an opportunity to um, increase their militarization efforts as well. Um, I don't necessarily know much about Russian military policy. Uh, I think we have a Russian here who might be able to jump in, but it seems that, you know, will Russia continue to be content with having a military the size of Spain? Historically, in the Soviet Union, no. Historically, in the Russian Empire, no. So, you know... It, it's going quite far back. Yeah, yeah. Going, going as far back. And I, I think I argued in a piece I, I wrote for the journal last year, I think it was, uh, yes. mm-hmm. that, um, you know, Putin isn't necessarily looking at reverting back to the Soviet Union. He's looking farther back. He's looking at the height of the Russian Empire uh, because, you know, there was more of a central control 
there. Whether or not that's changed in the past year, I'd have to go back and, and look at my notes. But I think I think the lack of these treaties or the weakening of these treaties has no positive benefit for anybody because uh, nations are going to militarize. Nations are going to become more on edge. Um, and you're going to start getting, you know, you might even see a, a sort of slip back into the Cold War mentality of, you know, we're still operating under the assumption of mutually assured destruction with all of the nuclear powers that exist in the world, um, friends and foes. Um, I don't think France or the UK are going to launch attacks on the US anytime soon. But, you know, we have to be, uh, policymakers have to think of, you know, that is a possibility. Um, you have to look at the possibility of um, rogue, uh, rogue states and non-state actors gaining control of nuclear weapons. So not only do these treaties ensure that nations responsibly use their nuclear weapons, but in some degree, reducing overall stockpiles has the spillover effect into reducing the probability or the chances that Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or Daesh are going to be able to acquire a weapon. Research shows that the single most effective way to prevent this is to have less weapons. The less weapons you have, the better you can keep track of everything, the less things can slip through the cracks. Um, so it, 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 it harkens to an era of, you know, the 1960s of children going under their desk for air raid drills and, you know, the Swiss building their military bunkers. They might still do that. You know, public transit stations serving as nuclear fallout shelters, I, I think. You know, the things of the history books might might be coming back. Socialist Republic of Europe, when exactly? Uh, <laughs> yeah, do you want to take some comments on that? So how do you feel it might, uh, these decisions might influence the image of the United States on, like, in global community, what I what I'm what I mean is this: basically, uh, we had this negotiated deals. Now the U.S. has decided to withdraw from it. So, do you feel it might affect the way it's perceived, this country is perceived globally as an unreliable partner, for example? Because, like, once you strike a deal and then uh, the U.S. administration just decides to pull out of it. So, basically, as you mentioned, those deals, for example, uh, the Iran deal was like. It was really hard to negotiate with everybody, including Russia, the European Union, and the U.S. And then uh, they just uh, pull out of it. And uh, what what kind of message does this convey? How do you feel? No, you're 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 kind of hitting the nail right on the head. Um, the U.S. has been a very reliable negotiating partner, a very reliable diplomatic ally since um, you know, especially since the end of the the Second World War. I think. I'm, my, 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 my concern is that four years of a single administration is going to work to undo all of that. Um, and I think we're getting close. I think you're going to have countries who have been burned once by the United States, um, again, in this administration, and this administration doesn't necessarily reflect the, um, the values of you know, rank-and-file bureaucrats or rank-and-file diplomats, um, but it is the publicly facing uh, the publicly facing policy of the U.S. to be a bit wishy-washy. And I, I think that uh, the, there's an academic term right there, wishy-washy. I think that nations are going to think twice about negotiating, at least with this president, in terms of um, you know, the ability to get something done. In, you know, once you put all that hard work in, is it going to remain? I think that in a, you know, a national politics sense, should the Democrats take control of the White House and the Congress, I think that international allies are going to recognize that 
it's going to be a pendulum shift into the other direction. That, you know, because the domestic politics put these forces into power, you know, the U.S. is probably going to be more reliable than the previous administration. It's almost like a, like a credit check, in a sense. Um, you know, this administration has really shown poor faith in adhering to international agreements um, and has even actively sought to redo and undo uh, international agreements. But a different administration... Yeah, but for example, like, uh, even though, like, the current administration, it keeps, like, withdrawing from different deals, but at the same time, there is no effort, well, from what I stand, uh, to, nego- to renegotiate them. So basically, we just don't need them. And do you feel like it's personal? Like, you mentioned, like, you, you mentioned this a couple of times, that this administration, this administration, do you feel like it's just personal? It boils down to only one person in power, or it's just part of some larger agenda, which is, like, a shift of agenda of the U.S.? I, I th- that's a tough question to answer, but I think it boils down to the ideology and the um, maybe the temperance of President Trump. I think that um, even within a domestic policy standpoint, I don't want to veer too much into that. There's almost been a um, there's almost been a perceived notion within the White House that my predecessors put something in place, so I have to undo it because that's the predecessor, like Obamacare. It's like the legacy, yeah. So, like, exactly, yeah. It's a, uh, it's it's a very, it's a very easy way for uh, the president to say, well, this is what I want to do, and to hell with what was done in the other administration. So, I think that's where you see things like the Iran nuclear deal falling apart. I think that was less so based on any sort of diplomatic posturing or advancement of foreign policy. It was simply because uh, Obama did it, and because in the mind of the policymakers of this administration, it was a bad deal, quote unquote. You know, why was it a bad deal? Because it was sort of loosening the restrictions on a historical adversary. So I, I think that I think that in those contexts, yes, the U.S. is not a, negoti- a, a reliable negotiating partner. But I think overall, the U.S. will continue to remain a, a reliable negotiating partner. You know, save for these four hopefully not eight years. Yeah, well, I think on that bombshell, we're going <laughs> to move to uh, Dari's, uh, Dari's comments. So Dari, well, introduce your, what do you want to talk to us about this week about? Yes, sure. I would like to address the mountain tensions between the US and the European Union uh, exacerbated by the response to China with regards to the coronavirus outbreak. So um, basically, we're all aware of the fact that the U.S. has recently uh, called out China and, and said that this country is, is to be held accountable for the outbreak uh, of the virus that took a lot of lives. Uh, on the country, we have the European Union that has been pretty hesitant to call out China on the very the same thing and uh, there is this problem so basically we have a situation when two parts of the free world they do not act together so uh, the US as the leader of the free world expects everybody to fall into its footsteps and to be united when it comes to China and just say that China what you did was wrong however we are not seeing this uh, however, at the same time, there is concern raised by European politicians and American politicians saying that 
the unwillingness to address this issue head-on by the European Union just indicates how reliable it is on China. And this is not good for the European Union, for democracy. So basically, um, there are think tanks saying that uh, after the crisis of 2008, Europe was pretty weak economically, and China came to rescue, so to say. It gave a lot of loans, and thus Europe has become more or less dependent. So, and a lot of politicians in Europe are actually raising this concern that it might happen again, because uh, China has been really adamant. It's been saying that we are ready to help Europe, to help out everybody. But, it, but the question is, at what cost? And uh, the problem that I have with this is that, so recently, the, Euro, the European Union and uh, China, they celebrated in May uh, their anniversary of their cooperation. And uh, the European uh, ambassador, his name is uh, Nicolas uh, Chebius, uh, he uh, co-edited a piece that was also published in the China Daily newspaper. And in this piece, he actually praised the cooperation that's been going on for years between China and the US, how good it has been so far. And he also mentioned that this virus originated in China. And this yeah. part was censored. In China Daily. Really? Yeah, it was. So it was a plus. And the European Union uh, was was not happy about this. Also, there is information that was published by Politico, then republished by Financial Times, that uh, China said a couple of times to the European Union that you are not to mention that China was the place where this virus uh, originated uh -huh. from. Yeah. So, so that uh, we did not have any problems with you guys. So basically, it's some sort of like form of blackmail because what we'll see. And we've seen this blackmail for a long time. So there are examples with Sweden, when Sweden said that China has like human rights violations. And then China said that uh, if you're going to keep saying this, we're going to punish you. So we're going to cut ties with you, you're going to suffer. So and they and you know, they, they are applying this wolf diplomacy, they call this like wolf diplomacy. So it's not like they aren't being silent anymore. They are active. They like American hogs, but Chinese wolves, something like this. And the problem with this is, for example, we have also Joseph Borrell, who is uh, the EU foreign policy chief. And he said that China has been pushing this narrative that the U.S. is an unreliable partner because the U.S. has not helped Europe thus far, but China has. And he also said that sometimes China even tries to convey this message through mass media different media outlets that, uh, for example, that not only China is not to blame for the virus, but also like Italy is to some extent, that that's where it originated. There is a lot of uh, nonsense going on in this case. However, we cannot say that Europe uh, is to blame for this behavior, because as we discussed previously, uh, the U.S. under this current administration has, proved, has proven to be not such a reliable partner in general. So uh, when this crisis was already going on, for example, uh, the U.S. imposed tariffs on Airbus. Uh, for example, there were cases when uh, Americans tried to give uh, German doctors money to come work for them. Then there was the case with French masks that uh, came from China and uh, they were supposed to like, be in France, but they stayed in France but the U.S. was trying to get them to uh, their soil. So, and I think in, in this case, I feel like this crisis is twofold. So on one hand, we have the European Union that is supposed to be a, an ally with the U.S. 
because it's like the free world. But on the other hand, they have this feeling that they should not be such an ally because the U.S. has recently not been a good one. So, and I believe that's really serious crisis that needs to be addressed. And uh, because it's important that allies, uh, I will, I personally believe that allies should work together, not because they have some shared like economies or whatever, they have values. So like the European Union and the U.S., they have democratic values, these liberal values, and I, and nobody knows uh, what kind of action China is going to uh, take once uh, Europe gets its help, for example. So in this case, it's very uh, alarming. And uh, we've seen uh, a lot of attempts made by China to influence uh, the politicians, as I've already mentioned. Uh, they've censored the peace. And uh, all of these things are pretty concerning, I believe. So, and in this case, I, I feel like uh, Europe is forced to choose between what's right, what's wrong, and who to rely on now and in the future, whether it's going to be China or the U.S. Maybe it's not a question of either or, but it's on yeah. The I think uh, responding to uh, sorry, I'm possibly checking uh, von der Leyen's comments. I think they're definitely concerned about relying on either of them too heavily anymore. Trump has the way that Trump has managed to undermine both in one direction and allowed Europe to undermine the alliance in the other direction so easily, even before these three, within a year, I think the crack reforming has made many Europeans quite worried about relying too heavily on the US and equally too heavily on China. Um, and on that wolf diplomacy as well, there's been a couple of good articles by The Economist on it and how it has damaged China severely. It, was, it wasn't established in Europe, it originated mostly with their diplomacy in Asia, especially in India, where they even accused India of perpetuating the virus or making it worse, and it just backlashed massively. So it's their first attempt at a unique dip diplomatic style, and I think it has failed, um, and it's made more of a backlash than anywhere, but it has shown their increasing kind of desire to get on the world stage in their own way. But I feel like it's a little bit alarming because the language this they use is pretty aggressive, I would say. So it's not like we have to negotiate, we have to uh, stick together and all of this. It's not, it's like uh, we have this position and if you disagree, uh, there will be consequences. You, you brought up the fact that, you know, Europeans almost have a choice between the Chinese or the U.S. Um, and kind of have to figure out which one they want to choose, if any, at all. I don't think the Europeans have that choice. I think the Chinese are going to force them to make that choice. And they're going to force them to make that choice um, in their favor. Uh, and I think you look at a lot of the, the Belt and Road stuff. Um, I recently spent the past year um, with a fellowship of mine looking at uh, Montenegro and trying to figure out how Montenegro can diversify its economy away from tourism. And one of the massive issues that they have is they sort of fell into the, or they, they were attracted by the fool's gold that was the BRI projects uh, to build a road between uh, Podgorica and uh, one of the port cities. There's no way that Montenegro is going to be able to pay that back. The agreement states that if Montenegro cannot pay that back, then the tolls that are, the taxes and the tolls that are collected from the motorists go to China. China settles any or, or settles or arbitrates any issue within their court you know, within a, a People's Republic of China court. And that, you know, essentially, in 10 years' time, the small Balkan nation is, is essentially going to be, you know, ruined financially. And I think that this 
strategy has played out not only in uh, the Balkans and, and, and in uh, Eastern Europe, but also Italy's jumped on board with the BRI. Africa's jumped on board with the BRI. Places like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and Pakistan have jumped on with the BRI. And China might be playing this economic, you know, wolf uh, diplomacy isn't working, but economic diplomacy works very well for China. That they're able to get nations right where they want them. Uh, With the BRI, they might lose, you know, actual cash and actual money, but a lot of these agreements give them something in return. The Sri Lankans can't pay back the loan on their ports. The Chinese get to repossess those ports. And China's just sort of expanded its geopolitical influence. Uh, China is able to sort of enter a economic trade war with the U.S. and more or less be fine with it. Um, the, the, the trade war between the U.S. and China almost hurt the U.S. more than it hurt China. Again, coming from someone who has three classes in, uh, in econ, you know, that seems to be my reading of the situation. So I wouldn't be surprised if, um, going back to, to your, your original comment and my original statement, I wouldn't be surprised if China uses this tried-and-true method of economic diplomacy to sort of weaken Europe and expand their sphere of influence. I see mm-hmm. believe that you... Uh, yeah, I would say, though, the Montenegro Agreement was cancelled. Was it? That. Really? The, the Hungarian Agreement was cancelled. The Serbian Agreement was cancelled. Okay. The Bosnian Agreement was cancelled as well. That's news to me. <laughs> Turkey... Ha- uh, sorry. Um, Italy has raised some of them. But a lot of agreements in Africa have also been cancelled for that very reason. The infamous Kenyan Railway, which is the first major one going from Mombasa to Nairobi, uh, was also cancelled for that very reason. I think a lot of states saw Sri Lanka and Pakistan, they were the first to have their project completed and taken over, and were very worried about it. Most countries, other than the most desperate, I think, do realise it's quite a threat to them. Um, and they're not going ahead with it. It's still going to succeed in its own little way. But the BRI, I think, is it's just an economic version of wolf diplomacy. Yeah. Well, I think definitely their own signature style. First of all, to respond to your, I wasn't aware that countries could pull out of these agreements. Um, yeah. But you're the international law student, not me. Um, and I think second of all, it it not. almost <laughs> almost uh, it, it almost you know looking at a, a China U.S. battle for for supremacy or hegemony. You know, in places like Africa, the U.S. doesn't really focus on mm-hmm. Africa, um, which you know, I'd argue is definitely a shortcoming of our own foreign policy. But when we do, it's always we'll provide um, economic aid, humanitarian aid, food aid, if only if you take steps to you know promote democracy or transition mm-hmm. into uh, better human rights. The European model that Diego was talking about earlier, where you know China really doesn't care about that. You know, you want to build a railroad between, you know, Mombasa and Nairobi, uh, and you don't want to adhere, maybe Kenya's not the best example, but, you know, the Chinese can come in with no strings attached and say, here's the money. Yeah, very true. You know, you don't need to promote democracy in a country that, you know, has struggled for the past X amount of years post-colonialization to gain democracy. And then that looks like a sweeter deal than the U.S., who are giving you all these conditions for, you know, human rights abuse mitigation and uh, promotion of free and fair elections, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, Diego? Oh, I was just going to uh, take advantage of uh, Larry's presentation. I was going to connect it to Jacqueline's that he gave uh, on, the, on the military agreement in the US and Russia. And as an international law student, 
we all know that all all states in the world are e are legally equal, and that all commitments in international law have to be committed because there is this principle of pacta conservanda or the commitment to ensure and take all endeavors to fulfill the goal of the agreement. Now, in geopolitics, as Jack may know, this doesn't happen because the international, the international order relies on one main superpower. It's either a unipolar or a multipolar uh, rule-based system, and we have had the U.S. since the World War II. And now the question is, will the U.S. continue in that place, uh, being the, the pivot between but what the other states that want to be a superpower or the states that wishes to expand their influence have to deal with it in this kind of agreements. So China is one of the superpowers that is using its leverage with the economic harsh diplomacy. And it's not only using it economically, because what because what has what has happened since World War II? Europe was destroyed. And the US Saw the destruction of Europe as an opportunity to offer its uh, to offer its all all its resources, including Latin America, to support Europe's reconstruction, and that helped the U.S. to assume a, le a leadership, assume this leverage uh, power over Europe, and the remaining countries that were destroyed. Now, with the coronavirus crisis, with the economic crisis, China is the world's factory, has the resources to, in this case support and inflate the economy of whatever country in the world. And because China has been so aggressively expanding to, in this case, uh, enhance the one China policy, they have filled in the gaps that the U.S., as Jackson, has left empty. So many of the countries that have alliances with the U.S. economically have lost this opportunity and have driven away to what China has promised as investment to infrastructure and to support their economies, while in the end, the result of the agreement on the Belarus Initiative is an impayable loan that will have to either repossess a port or a highway, or will either have to uh, engage into an endless arbitration in a Chinese court. So this, so this question of international order is more okay. So I'm the European Union. I'm an international power of 27 member states. Well, 26. Well, uh, yes, 27 without the United Kingdom, and I have to decide between. And to decide between one superpower that no longer wants to be the superpower in the world and one power that, despite its, let's say, uh, back or dark history in fulfilling its obligations on human rights and international law obligations, but at the same time that has the economic power to keep this economic cooperation we are looking for our market because many of the European, many of the products in the European market if not the 60% come from China. So China has rightly or, or smartly, you know, recognized the the weakness of the US in the past 4 years. Uh, never before in the post-war period have you seen US presidents reject traditional allies or um, you know even in in the face of this pandemic you've never seen US leaders really um, reject science and fact and things like that, where China can, can almost come in and say, you know, we've never had this opportunity before. We've been trying to build up towards it, you know, since the, the 70s. But like now, now here's the opportunity. Um, and I think that's concerning. Though I'll, I'll end this comment on an optimistic note that I think this uh, lapse of U.S. leadership is only temporary. I think that, um, you know, we've had a 70-plus a year history of 
again, for better or for worse, serving as that, um, as you were talking about, that sort of, you know, required leader within the, the global legal system. Um, I don't think four years is going to completely erase that, but it's definitely going to set the U.S. back and the U.S. is going to have to, you know, as, as Darian and I were talking about, or, or is going to have to, you know, reassure allies, both strong allies in the European Union, but also more periphery allies that, no, we can be trusted. We, uh, it is worth, you know, instilling your faith in the U.S. system because of our promotion of democracy, our promotion of human rights, all these things that are good that the U.S., at least in theory, promotes. Uh, Darry, do you want a final comment before we, we end the podcast and some of the things you've heard? Well, I would only like to say that it's important, like, as, as far as my question goes, as far as my comment goes, that it's important for the U.S. and the European Union to remember uh, that their partnership and their cooperation, their union, is not only based on, for example, on fighting with Russia or with Iran or whatever. There is a huge value component. And uh, politicians on both sides should realize that and try to stick together as uh, parts of the free world and uh, defend uh, free values, uh, democracy, liberal uh, values, and human rights, for example. And uh, it should remain so in the future. And uh, I also hope that this change in the U.S. foreign policy is temporary and uh, the trust can be uh, rebuilt in the future because it's it's for the better, like for everybody in the world. Not only, I believe that when there is this strong leadership in the free world, and when the free world dominates the world in general, it's better for everybody. It's better for Russia, for Africa, Middle East, for, for everybody. So and I think that's what they should focus on. Yeah. It's a real channel, channeling of Fukuyama's end of history. <laughs> we should try and go back to the end of history. All right, uh, book club, let's do it. <laughs> book club <laughs> anyway thank you very much Dari thank you very much Diego and Jack for an excellent uh, week of the comments next week we'll be back with uh, discussions on if I can find it exactly Central and Southeast Europe so look forward to that and otherwise I wish you all a fantastic week uh, stay safe stay healthy and to our listeners of course you can follow us and read our articles on our website social media and everything else most of our lovely articles are edited by Diego and Jack, one of our lovely editors here. So uh, if you have any comments on them, feel free to reach out to them. I'm sure they can, uh, they can offer some response to them. Otherwise, thank you very much. Have a good week. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having me.